Now, if you will, brothers and sisters, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. After breaks for Christmas and the beginning of the year, we're back into this book of 1 Corinthians. We're going through it verse by verse. We've covered a good deal of it so far, and this week we come to chapter 7, verse 10. Now, I'm sure that most of us will not soon forget the events that unfolded at our nation's Capitol building on Wednesday. But in churches all across America today, there is something happening that is more important than anything that happens in the halls of Congress. God's people are gathering together, worshiping Him, strengthening each other, and hearing from God. The grass withers, the flower fades, nations and kingdoms rise and fall, but the word of our God stands forever. The words of this book are more important than the words of the United States Constitution. And the identity that we have as Christians, for those of us here who have given our lives to Christ, who call Him our Lord, our identity as Christians is more important and more lasting than our identity as Americans. And so, once again, as we do every week, we come together to hear God's words to us. Now today, once again, we are going to see that God's word is intensely practical. It meets us where we live. It speaks into the everyday situations we find ourselves in. It wades into the messiness of our lives. We are meant, brothers and sisters, to take the truths that we find in the Bible and then to get our hands dirty applying them. Theology does not make us ivory tower academics who understand little about everyday life. No, theology affects everything that we do. And in this particular passage of 1 Corinthians today, Paul addresses Christians who find themselves married to someone who is not a believer. Christians who are married to someone who is not a believer. What wisdom and encouragement does God have to those who are in this situation? What wisdom and encouragement does God have to those of us who are not in this situation and how we can be better brothers and sisters and be the church to these who are? Specifically, we're going to ask four questions from our text this morning. Four questions. I'll give you all four before we read our text. And these will kind of set the structure to the message today. The four questions are this. First, what does Paul mean in verses 10 and 12? You'll see what I mean by that in just a minute. Second question, why is marriage between a believer and a non-believer such a big deal? Third question, should a Christian who finds themselves in this situation, seek a divorce? And fourth, what if the unbelieving spouse wants out of the marriage? Those are the four questions we're going to address. Let's read our text. You'll see where they come from. Starting in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. 
To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay, so four questions. We're going to take them in turn. The first is a little different than the others because it has to do with just a kind of a technicality in the text. But it's one that I think if we did not address, you might be distracted the whole rest of the sermon. So what does Paul mean in verses 10 and 12? Look with me again at those verses. In verse 10, Paul says, to the married I give this charge. And then a parenthesis opens and he says, not I, but the Lord. What's that about? And then in verse 12, to the rest I say, open parenthesis, I, not the Lord. What does he mean here? Well, in verse 10, what Paul is saying, in verse 10 when he says, not I, but the Lord, He's saying that verses 10 and 11 are teachings that Jesus himself gave. Jesus addressed this specifically during his earthly ministry. Right? You can find Jesus' remarks on divorce and how people should not get divorced in places like Matthew 19 and Mark 10. Jesus addressed this explicitly during his ministry. And so when Paul teaches things like verses 10 and 11, he says, this is straight from the Lord's mouth. This is from the Lord. This is not me. This is the Lord's words. But then in verse 12, he says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. And what he's doing in verse 12 is Paul is teaching something in verses 12 and following that Jesus did not address in his public ministry. There there were things that Jesus didn't address during his public ministry that we don't have record of him talking about. And so Paul's saying, this is not something that Jesus addressed, and so I'm teaching on something that Jesus didn't teach on. But that raises another question. Does this mean, then, that verses 10 and 11 carry the authority of God's Word, while verses 12 and following are merely Paul's suggestions? Is that what Paul is saying? Does it mean we don't have to take Paul's words as seriously as the words of Christ? And you can see how people would ask this question because of who Jesus is, right? Jesus, as a person, as a man, as a figure, is the most important human being that's ever lived. He is more important and more prominent than Paul or any of the other apostles or any of the other biblical authors. And so does this mean that Jesus' words carry a weight that the rest of the, the words of the Bible and the words of Paul don't carry? Now, some indeed do make this argument. I'm kind of tipping my hat here, but some indeed do make this argument, or I should say tipping my hand. This is not new. It's not a new teaching, but it's one that gains popularity every now and then. And I want you to be aware of it. I want you to have discernment and wisdom when you hear something like this, when you hear something like, well, the words of Jesus are are Christianity in its purest form. And all the other words of the New Testament, they're good, but they're just not... Christianity in its purest form. Some people will say that sometimes. They'll, they'll specifically, a lot of times, gear around the Sermon on the Mount. 
in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 and say, that's Christianity. That's the essence of Christianity. And everything else is just kind of second best. It's all good, but it's second best. There are people who teach this. But this is not what Scripture teaches us. It's not what God tells us in His Word. And it's not what Paul means here. Later in this book of 1 Corinthians, we will see that Paul believed that all his words were God-breathed Scripture. Paul believed that about what he was writing as he was writing. Listen to Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 14. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Paul knew as he was writing that he was writing inspired Scripture, the words of God, not just his own words. These are not just the words of Paul, right? These are the words of God. This is God's word to us. It carries more weight than just a letter that I would write to you. The Holy Spirit has inspired every word of Scripture. And so we read later in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture. Every bit of your Bibles is God's word. Words of God. And so, if it's all God-breathed, if it's all Scripture that comes from the mouth of God, there's no part of it that can be more God's Word than another or more authoritative than another. Jesus' words are the words of God. And the words we read in Romans or 1 Peter or Hebrews are just as much the words of God. If they are God's inspired words, none can be better or more perfect than the others. So... The red letters in your Bibles are no more God's Word than the black letters. Is Jesus a more important figure than Paul or Peter or John or the others? Absolutely. But every word you find in your Bibles is straight from God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul says in verse 12, I, not the Lord, that doesn't mean all of a sudden it's not authoritative. doesn't mean all of a sudden it's less important. It just means that it's not something that Jesus addressed explicitly during his earthly ministry. That's all Paul means there, okay? So if we didn't address that, I think some of us would be kind of distracted by that, the rest of the message. But the next three questions that we're going to ask of this text have more to do with the point of the passage. The first question we're going to ask is this, why is marriage between a believer and a non-believer such a big deal? Why is this such a big deal? Because it is in Scripture. It's a big deal. God makes a big deal out of Christians being married to non-Christians. There's a point in Scripture where God talks explicitly about don't get married to someone who's not a believer if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian right now and you're single, you need to marry someone who is also a believer. Seek out someone who shares that value, that most important thing in your life. Because otherwise you're asking for a world of trouble. You're asking for all kinds of heartache and and a burden on you that you don't have to take on. So God will tell us in Scripture that a believer should not seek to marry someone who is not a believer. But what happens when that person finds themselves married to a non-Christian? What happens when two people are married and both are not Christians, and then one of them becomes a Christian? That's what we're talking about today. So why is marriage between a believer and a non-believer such a big deal? Because when someone becomes a Christian, they are giving Jesus lordship of their life. Jesus becomes the most important thing when you give your life to Him. He becomes the most important thing in your life. 
Number one, more important than everything else, more important than your spouse, more important than your kids. He is the overriding authority in everything. He's more important even than your own self, right? Jesus sits on the throne of your heart if you're a believer today, if you're a Christian, if you're truly following him. And so what that means is in a marriage where both people aren't Christians, now all of a sudden the most important thing to one person in the marriage is not the same as the most important thing to the other. And so there's this unavoidable wedge between these two people who are sharing their lives in the most intimate way that we can share our lives with someone. Now, it's not impossible for two people to live like this, but it's hard. It's hard. It's hard for both of them. Not to mention the added hardship when there are children involved. And so, brothers and sisters, it is no small thing when one person in the marriage is a Christian and the other is not. In fact, to that person who is the believer in the marriage, it is a heavy burden. It is a heavy burden. And if you are not in this situation right now, you need to know that we as the church, we need to be helping them bear that burden. We are here, given to them by God to help them bear the burden that their spouse is not helping with. If this is not you, Pray for these folks. Many of you know people in situations like this. Some of you are in a situation like this. But others know people in situations like this. Pray for them. And help them to bear this burden. Check in on them spiritually. Be the church for one another. And so it's a big deal when someone is married to someone who's not a believer and they themselves are a Christian. Now, The next question, the third, should a Christian who finds themselves married to an unbelieving spouse seek divorce? If a Christian finds themselves married to an unbelieving spouse, should they seek divorce? Now think about this in Paul's day. There were all kinds of people hearing the good news of the gospel. It was very new back then. Jesus had just lived and died and resurrected. All of a sudden they're understanding following Christ is the way to God. And so there were all kinds of marriages where one spouse would convert to Christianity and the other spouse hadn't done it. All kinds of marriages. And then those people who had converted to Christianity, who all of a sudden are saying, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my Savior, He's the most important thing in my whole life. All of a sudden you can understand how those people would start asking questions like, does this mean I need to divorce my non-Christian spouse? If Jesus is the most important thing in my life, do I need to divorce my non-Christian spouse? Look what Paul says in verses 12 and 13. In verse 12 he says, If any brother, brother means fellow Christian who's a man, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Paul says do not seek a divorce in this case. Do not seek divorce even if your partner is not a Christian. God tells us in His Word that we should never enter into marriage with an unbeliever, but if two are married and one becomes a Christian, the other does not, they should not seek divorce. Now look at verse 14 with me. Verse 14 is actually very helpful, but on first glance it can be very confusing. right? Because at first it seems like it might be teaching something that seems impossible. Look at verse 14. It says, 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What in the world does that mean? This has tripped people up for centuries, just letting you know, right? First of all, here's what it cannot mean. It cannot mean that the unbelieving spouse is saved because of being married to a believing spouse. It's not as if the unbelieving spouse, God looks down and says, I'm going to count that person as a Christian because that one over there is, right? That's not the way Paul's explaining it here. That's not what happens. It's not like, I'm going to count their children as Christians because one spouse is a Christian. That's not what happens here. It's not what he's saying. What he is saying is this. First of all, he's giving an encouragement to those new converted believers who are saying, maybe I should divorce my non-Christian spouse. They're sincerely chasing after Jesus. They're sincerely following him as Lord of their life, saying, maybe I should divorce my non-Christian spouse. And Paul says, no, don't divorce. Because the believer in a marriage like this is not spiritually defiled by being married to an unbeliever. You can see how people would think that. I'm, I'm spiritually defiled by being married to an unbeliever because marriage is such an intimate thing, right? Paul says, no, you're not spiritually defiled by being married to an unbeliever. Marriage is not going to defile you like that, so don't seek a divorce. But second, he's also saying this. He's saying the holiness of that one believer and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the home has a sanctifying effect on the entire family. There's a sanctifying effect on the entire family when one person is a believer. You see, when you're a Christian, when you come up and get baptized under those waters, and your your faith is genuine, when that happens, God sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, to help you live this Christian life, to sanctify you over the years of following Christ. So what that means is, in a household where there's only one Christian, Holy Spirit's in that house. Holy Spirit's in that house in a way that he is not in a household where there are no Christians. So even in a marriage where there's only one believer, there is a sanctifying effect on the entire family. If a wife is a Christian and the husband is not, there are ways that that wife is affecting him for Christ and affecting the holiness of of the marriage and the home and the children as well, Paul says. And so it does not mean that God looks down and counts other people as saved on the account of the one person coming to Christ. It just means there's a sanctifying effect on everything. Think about marriage, right? Marriage is a big deal. It's the uniting of two people together as one in a way that changes both. It's a covenant between two people for a lifetime. Two souls are united as one. The the world teaches us that marriage is just a social contract with mutual benefits. And once the benefits don't outweigh the cost anymore, you just end the contract, right? But marriage is much more than a contract between two people. Marriage is much more than sharing a physical living space, right? Marriage is a spiritual union between two people, between two human beings, even two people who are not Christians. When they get married, there's a spiritual aspect to their union. And when one person in that marriage is a Christian and the other is not, That means there's going to be a sanctifying effect on the entire family, the entire home, the marriage, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in that one believer. Does that make sense? And so when you come to this passage a year or two from now, I hope it's not as esoteric and confusing when you read it. This is is actually just a a really encouraging 
support that Paul gives to someone who is married to an unbeliever saying, don't, don't seek a divorce. Don't try to divorce them because you're not going to be spiritually defiled. In fact, you're going to affect them for Christ. But then the, the final question, the fourth, what if the unbelieving spouse, though, wants out of the marriage? What if the unbelieving spouse wants out? What if the unbelieving spouse sees the commitment that their spouse has made to Christ, sees all of a sudden that the most important thing in their life is Jesus? Jesus is, is more important to them than I am. And all of a sudden the spouse says, I don't want any part of that. I'm out. I, I don't want to change my life. I don't want that to impinge on what I want to do on my freedom. I see that my spouse has committed to Christ and it's changing their life in all kinds of ways because it has to when you come to Christ. I don't want any part of that. I want out. What does Paul say? Well, verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. There are two biblical grounds for divorce that we find in the Bible, and two only. Perhaps we we might wish there were more. Perhaps we might wish there were more details on situations that the Bible doesn't address. But we find two in Scripture. You can comb over the whole Bible. When it comes to New Covenant believers, there are only two biblical permissions for divorce. The first is sexual immorality. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, 31 through 32, and Matthew 19, 9, that when a spouse commits sexual immorality, the other spouse can biblically get a divorce then, because that other spouse has, in a very deep way, um, broken the covenant of marriage. So sexual immorality is one biblical ground for divorce, and the only other biblical ground for divorce in Scripture is right here, 1 Corinthians 7.15, if an unbeliever wants a divorce from a believer. If an unbeliever wants out of the marriage. Now, you've, you've got to see here, if you are the believer in a marriage like this, then as far as it depends on you, work to, re, to remain married. Don't seek a divorce, Paul says, as far as it depends on you. But if your unbelieving spouse wants out, it is biblically permissible. It would not be an unbiblical divorce. Now, I say this with trembling, and I, and I want you to feel the weight of this, because God hates divorce. We, we read that in the book of Malachi. God hates divorce. Every divorce, even though each situation is different, even though every situation is unique, every single divorce is somehow, some way, the result of sin. And if sin were not here in this world, it would not have happened. Right? Every marriage should be for life. And so anytime divorce happens, God is not okay with it. It is a sad thing. It is something that we wish could have been avoided. And there are many ways, many, many ways, where the Christian church has become complacent in this area and has just turned a blind eye to all kinds of unbiblical divorces. Every single one of us in here who is married needs to remember what we promised when we were at the altar of marriage. Till death do us part. Every time somebody comes to me and says, I'm thinking about divorce, I'm going to straight up ask them, did you promise till death do us part? Did you say that? Would you not mean it? This is serious. So there's a, there's a, a weightiness that I want to have come across anytime we say divorce is okay. Anytime we say divorce is permissible, right? 
There are only two biblical grounds that we find for divorce. Now, perhaps you might have questions on all kinds of other situations. What about this situation? What about that? There's all kinds of good teaching out there, but I'm here to tell you that the Bible addresses these two, and these are the only two that it actually addresses. So I can't speak for God on another situation that God didn't speak into because I don't have His words on those situations. This is what we have. And so if the unbelieving spouse wants out of the marriage, that would be the only other biblically permissible divorce. Now finally, let me say a word to husbands and wives here. So often in these situations, when there's a believer married to a non-believer, so often in these situations, it's the wife who is the only believer in her marriage. Not always, not always, but often. So let me say to the husbands who are spiritually leading your families and following Christ, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. For husbands out there who are spiritually leading their families, who are following Christ, who are seeking Christ yourself and teaching that to your family and to your children and leading by example and being the first one to sacrifice in serving, thank you. Because there are so many husbands out there that are not doing that, that are leaving it to their wives, that are placing a burden on their wife that God never intended her to bear alone. So thank you to all the husbands out there who are doing this and leading in this. Now, to those who feel alone as the only believer in your marriage, I want you to know that we see you. And we are here for you. This church is here for you. You are carrying a burden, we know. You are carrying a burden that is hard to bear, and we are here to help you bear it and to help you carry it. But more importantly, you need to hear this. God sees you. Hear me? God sees you. Your faithfulness to Christ has not gone unnoticed. God will strengthen you. Jesus can fulfill all the desires of your heart. Go to Him every day. His mercies are new every morning. In Christ, we have more than enough. In Christ, if we go to Him every day, we are overflowing. You can have all the desires of your heart met in Christ. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, 4. But also remember verse 16. Verse 16 is true in a negative sense and a positive sense. Look at verse 16 with me. Verse 16 says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, in the negative sense, Paul's just coming off of giving a biblical permission for divorce in verse 15. And so he's saying, don't force somebody into something that they're not ready to be in, that they don't want to be in if they're an unbeliever. That's as far as it depends on the unbeliever, okay? Don't force it. So Paul's saying, how do you know? You don't know whether or not you will save them, right? You can't count on you saving them, right? But verse 16 is also true in a positive sense. For those of you who feel alone in your marriage, it feels like it's, there's no hope. And you feel like you love Christ and your spouse doesn't share that. and You, you want more than anything for your spouse to have that. 
How do you know if God will not use you to save your spouse? How do you know, wife? How do you know, husband, whether or not God will use your faithfulness and your obedience and your holiness to save your spouse? Peter says in 1 Peter 3 that wives, if you live faithfully to the Lord, your husband can be one to the Lord without words because of your faithful conduct. Without words. This happens. I've seen it happen. Some of you have probably seen it happen. And so brothers and sisters, let's pray, 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 pray. For how do we know? Let's pray for those who we know that are in relationships like this. Let's, let's pray for their unbelieving spouses. Pray that God would open their eyes and that they would see the truth of the gospel and the lies of Satan. Pray that God would soften their heart and open them up to the gospel and to Jesus. Pray that God would draw them to Jesus. Pray that they would hear the gospel and it would pierce their heart. That they would hear the fact that Jesus died on the cross and took the wrath of God for their sins so that they could be reconciled to God. Pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them that they are not right with God and they need to be before it's too late. Pray, pray, pray. You never know. That's what Paul's saying there. You never know. There's always hope. The Holy Spirit can do so much more than all we can ask or imagine. And so let's pray, pray, pray for these people. So we're going to spend just a few moments now praying. We do this most every week, individually, I want to give you time to respond to the Lord for what He's laid on your heart. What has God put on your heart through His Word today? I don't know. could be different for every single one of us, but we're going to spend a few moments now in silent prayer, responding to the Lord for whatever He has laid on your heart. So after we respond privately, we're going to come back and we're going to stand and sing together here in just a few moments. And we're going to give a time where anyone who needs to can respond to God's Word publicly. But before that, let's, let's spend some time in private prayer responding individually.